Let's then, make some magic. Ooh. All right. This is like old times. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm joined today by one of our other co-hosts, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? How are you? I'll cut that before we get going, but how are you? I mean, it's still 2020, so I guess, you know, about as, about as good as one can be, I guess. Yeah, uh, I sound, I, I'm, I am acting much more upbeat than I actually feel. Um, it has been a heavy day. But for a bajillion reasons, not the least yeah. of which is the fact that just about 30 minutes ago, Oklahoma City police shot a man in the back in broad daylight as he ran away from them. A black man. Yeah. Yeah. A homeless black man yeah. with a knife uh, that was running away from them. Uh, and, and they've since have uh, pepper sprayed the crowd that has gathered to protest this. So yeah. sounds like that situation's going awesome. Uh, we are, we are, we are two today instead of three. We are a duet instead of a trio. Uh, our good friend and delightful co-host Bailey Perkins, uh, is out. Uh, she has, uh, told us that we can share the fact that she is out of the podcast today and out of work as she is, uh, suffering from coronavirus infection. Uh, it sounds like she is starting to feel better and is on her way to recovery. And we of course wish her all the best and a speedy return here to join us back on the podcast. So uh, those of you who are praying folk, if you want to send any prayers or thoughts or whatever form of good vibes you subscribe to uh, out to Bailey, I have no doubt that she would appreciate that. That's right. Good um, vibes so, only. So, so there's, so there's that. Um, what else? Yeah. What, man, it's a hell of a day. I started with the shooting. I thought about Bailey. I'll bounce it back to you for what's right. next. Well, and as <laughs> listeners know, my mom is um, still in the hospital, still on the ventilator. Um, and I had to give consent today um, so that they can put her on dialysis later today. Um, and so, but they are the interventional radiologists that perform that, that piece of inserting the, the um, dialysis catheter are so overwhelmed that it'll be several hours before she is uh gets to do that so um th things are getting worse right like just we just need a crawl at the bottom of the screen that says things are getting worse um because that's what it feels like um also yeah. my gra you don't i don't know if i told you this but my grandma uh had to go to the doctor today to get more fluid drained off of her lung so my dad had to take her uh, and so that's why i was the one to give consent because when the hospital called him. He didn't answer because he was at the doctor with grandma, you know, getting a giant needle stuck in her back to drain fluid. So um, we're all very aware of our mortality these days. I think most of us. Yeah. You know, there is, um, <clears throat> I don't think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not a like, oh, just be positive type of person. Like, I think that, uh, I think that, I think that's good. I think it's easy to get like, I think it's easy to get in, in a negative headspace and find yourself tough to get out. But when things are shit, I also think it's important to acknowledge that things are shit instead of trying to pretend that they're not. Um, however, uh, there is some good news. Uh, yesterday, uh, the the committee, uh, subcommittee that that deals with data review and analysis on uh, vaccine efficacy and safety met, and they voted 17 to 4 to uh, recommend that the FDA would approve uh, the Pfizer vaccine for an emergency use authorization. That hasn't actually happened yet, but that committee has voted in favor of it. I think one thing that's important to note um, about this the four no votes, um, the four no votes all cited the same reason. Um, they felt like the cutoff for use should have been 18, not 16, based on the available data. They said had the cutoff been uh, 18 instead of 16, they would have voted for it. So um, there were no concerns about uh, safety and efficacy. Uh, there were four people, though, out of the 21 who felt like we should have set the cutoff at 18 um, just because there's not as much data on people under 18 mm -hmm. at this time. Had it been 18... The vote to recommend use the vaccine would have been unanimous. So now it's in the hands of the FDA, assuming that that emergency use authorization comes within the next 24 to 48 hours, which I have every reason to think that it will. Um, we will start seeing uh, people receive the coronavirus vaccine uh, next week. Oklahoma is set to get our first dose, uh, first doses of the vaccine here next week. Those are going to go to hospitals. Uh, they'll be starting to vaccinate frontline healthcare workers, folks that are working in hospitals, taking care of COVID patients. Uh, we expect to have about 166,000 doses of vaccine available in Oklahoma by the end of the month. So, um, you know, uh, Dr. Fry spoke today, quoting uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fry being our uh, state health department. What's his, is it, he's a commissioner or director? He's a commissioner, right? I think it's commissioner. Yeah. Commissioner of the Department of Health. Commissioner, yeah. Commissioner Fry, Doctor Fry. He uh, he was quoting Doctor Fauci saying that the uh, that the cavalry is here. Um, I I would say that they're they're on the way. We can hear we can hear their hoofbeats. We still have, you know. I think that uh, there is well, a light like at the end of the tunnel. But unfortunately, Genghis Khan's army, I guess, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like, um, you know, there is a light. <clears throat> There is a light at the end of the tunnel, um, but in the tunnel metaphor, even though we can see the light, we still have several miles of darkness ahead of us. Um, yeah. So, well, and to use um, another analogy, is that you know, one hundred and sixty-six thousand doses is tremendous, but there are four million Oklahomans, right? And so, as in the grand scheme of things, nationwide, the amount of of vaccine that we will be administering in the next week or two is a garden hose on a forest fire of community spread across the country. It is it is helpful, but it's going to take a lot more water for a lot longer time to get this fire under control. Yeah, I mean we're we're going to need to see um I'm I would guess and this is these are numbers that I not number these are not calculations I have done. These are these are other people's numbers that I have read and are now co-opting. Uh, something on the order of about a hundred million people vaccinated uh, in the U.S. to really start seeing the tide stem. That's probably going to take March or April ish. Um, if right. you if you take similar numbers and look at Oklahoma, you're talking about um, probably something on the order of a million people one one point two five one point three something in there um, uh, getting vaccinated to to really start seeing. That doesn't mean that spread can't slow before then. But if we are relying only on vaccines to slow the spread, that's what it's going to take. And so we are probably looking at <clears throat> March, March, April 
um, before we start seeing that. Have Scott, do we so. know yet? Like, I, I know we don't necessarily know how long antibodies last, but I, you know, people have been asking questions like, okay, so let's say, let's say half of Oklahomans, right? 200 or 2 million people get vaccines and you got another half a million or however many that have had the disease um, and presumably have some sort of antibodies and then no one else does. And so the virus continues to spread among the unprotected. Do we know if there's a time frame where like everyone's antibodies would run out and then they would thus be eligible uh, or potentially infectable again? Yeah, so that's not a question we know the answer to. And, and quite frankly, we just don't know that because the virus hasn't been around long enough for, know that, for us right. to know that. That's only an answer that's going to come with time. Now, it does seem like, and this gets a little bit technical, but it, it does seem like antibodies, right? Specifically, antibodies tend to fade after about three to four months. Um, um, the titers go down. And what's what we think takes over, and I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't, I have not looked at this particular facet of the virus in a couple of months. So it could be that we know some things now we didn't know the last time I checked. But the thinking was that as the antibody titers drop, something called T cell immunity, immunity takes over, which is an alternative form mm -hmm. of it. It's a different pathway by which our body can have immunity to diseases. And it's very powerful. It also has a memory function. So that doesn't mean that like, oh, after three or four months, you can get the virus again. It just means that after three or four months, it's not antibody mediated protection that it keeps you from being infected. It's a different kind of immunity that keeps you from being infected. So, you know, I think we have, you, you know, you see sometimes like that people like, oh, well, so-and-so got the virus, they had it and then they got it again. Um, to my knowledge that throughout the world, true cases of actual like verified like reinfection like i had coronavirus that i didn't and then i had it again it's it's less than 10 cases i want to yeah. say it's like four or yeah. six like mm -hmm. it's a, it is a drop in the bucket so that would make you think that you know immunity is one pretty strong right it's pretty robust once you've had it and two it lasts at least a year because now we're we're about 14 months away from when the virus was first uh, first discovered, the first cases were infected in, in Wuhan, China. And so um, we don't know how, how long it'll go, but it seems that 14 months out, they, the response is still pretty strong, which is very good news. It's, it, I am, you know, continually, I'm sure my, you and many of our listeners feel this way. Um, like I have moments where like life just feels normal. Like you just go along, but then you just, I have also have moments where it's like, no, everything is totally different. And like, like uh, as an, a tiny example, my uh, brother-in-law asked me yesterday what my wife's favorite restaurants, local restaurants are, because I think he drew her name in the, uh, you know, gift swap situation. And I was like, uh, restaurants, like we still get takeout, but not from as wide of a range of places, you know? And so like, I think we've kind of drifted away from like trying to try the new place. Cause we just have, we're just trying to get through every week. Um, and, and so I was thinking about, okay, what's it going to be like? It's not like one day, you know, just everything's fixed and we're all back and going out to bars and restaurants and stuff, but trying to think like the idea of going somewhere and sitting down with friends sounds so great and potentially weird. Just like I was, you know, was watching, I was watching Veep last night, actually, and uh, 
I, because I found out, and listeners, you may benefit from this. With my AT and T cell phone plan, I get free HBO Max. Did you? Do you have this? Yeah, you do. You already knew did this. You just, did you just learn about this? Yes, dude. I've had HBO Max for two years now, and I think I've paid for it like a month out of that time. Every I time do. I've gotten it, I've gotten I've gotten it for free as a piggyback from something else I sub- I subscribe to. I mean, I came to your house to watch the uh, West Wing special for this reason because I didn't. I mean, I also yeah, want to hang out with, but I didn't know until I was I'm looking. Also, just a listener's note: we we watched it distanced and outside. We did, yes, sir, on the patio, and I was a full ten feet away from you, and upwind. That's true. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, so I was very excited. So I can resume. I went back to start watching Veep again because I only had seen the first season, and there was, uh, you know, just everyone being in close proximity and in the same office, and you just have that like cringy feeling of like, why does this feel weird to me? Like I. Just because we haven't done that, so yeah, yeah, no, it's bizarre, and and then there's days where you want like, um, you know, I mean, we, you know, as we know, I I like whiskey, and I have a I have whiskey at my house, and you know, I like to make cocktails, and you know, I want to say during pandemic times, I've gotten pretty good at making some some nice cocktails here at the house, but Wednesday of this week, I had a really long day. Ashley had a really long day. We had to run an errand real quick after work, and we finished that, and we got in the car. And I was like, man, I just mm-hmm. like, and I don't feel this as much anymore because I've gotten used to it. But I was like, I would just, I would, I would kill to be able to go somewhere and sit down at a bar or a table and just have like some like bread and like dip of some kind and a cocktail. Yeah, like, I was, I was like, thinking that's about what I want to do right yeah, now. Yeah, queso uh-huh. and chips and like a cold beer. And also, I the other day I had to go. Um, drop something off at the UPS store, some kind of returned item. And uh, so I went to the one down on 10th and Broadway ish, right next to camps in Oklahoma city here. And uh, so I passed by sidecar and I was like, man, when's the last time I went to sidecar? I don't know. Obviously it was in 2019 or before you know, yeah. like Scott yeah. and I like would love to go there on like a sunny afternoon and sit on that patio um, and be able to, you know, talk politics and brainstorm ways to change the world. So anyway, right. I mean, they will come right. It'll by next, hopefully next summer, it'll be warm and sunny and we can do these things again. One thing that I do want to, um, I want to put in people's brains. Um, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, I think to lots of folks. Um, and, you know, I think for most of us, it's going to be several uh, weeks, if not a couple of months before we get the vaccine. So I'm going to say this over and over again, and I want you to say it over and over again. And listeners, when you hear this, I want you to tell it to people that you talk to. For the time being, once you have had your vaccine, that does not mean that you're like, oh, buddy, I got the vaccine, like done, like no more masking for me. I'm going out. It's dinner time. No, like I promise that that time will come. But even once you have the vaccine, it is really important for the time being that all of us continue to adhere to our precautions. One, this vaccine is very effective, but it's not 100% effective, right? There is no vaccine that is 100% effective. This is about 95%, okay? Um, Which is, again, really, really, really good. It's enough to make a huge difference, but it's not 100%. So there is still some risk. Two, 
there is some data from the AstraZeneca Oxford trial that seemed to suggest once you have the vaccine, if you are exposed to the virus again, you there you then cannot transmit it to others. But we don't have that data yet for the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. So I, you know, I think there are reasons to be optimistic there. But again, we don't know it. So one, you still could get it even with the vaccine. The chances are much, much, much lower, and you would likely not have a severe illness, but you still can get it. Two, we don't know what the likelihood is that you can transmit it to other people. And three. There are a lot of people who are not going to have the vaccine for several weeks or months. And I think the more we can have a sense of community that like we're all in this together to the extent that we do have that, we need to maintain that for as long as possible so that that we all we we all get into this at the same time. We all get out of it at the same time. Right. There will come a time. There will come a time when you don't have to distance, when you don't have to wear a mask. Um, and that time, I think we can start to visualize when that's going to be. But the day after you get your shot, particularly your first one is not that time. Right. Right. Yes. No, so, I think it's very important. Just, we, everyone hang tight, hold fast. Together we will make it through. Right? Like just don't rush it. You know how things are when you rush it. Indeed. It, it never turns out the same. It's never good. Yes. Yes. Patience yes, is a virtue. But, All right. Well let's anyway, uh let's pivot away. Did from, anything political happen? Yes. Because yes. did anything political happen this week? <laughs> yes. Um I, uh, a couple of things. One, just as a totally humorous note, listeners, if you're on Twitter, I encourage you to follow um, Scott and I's new favorite account that we send to one another, um, and that is Oklahoma Gov Just Googled. Um, it's actually at GovStit Googles. Um, I don't know who's behind it, but 99% of them are make me chuckle out loud. Um, some of them are concerning more than others, but it's always pretty funny. And if you look for something that's a little funny, um, I feel like it's good natured satire. Most of the time, uh, that's a good account. It makes me laugh nearly every time. I will uh, say on a more serious political note. So this week, yesterday, in fact, was the bill. No, today, today is the bill request deadline. And um, that means that legislators had to, kind of put in their requests for their bills. This is not the same as the filing deadline. That doesn't happen until January. So they, you know, the House members are limited to six bills each, I think. Uh, senators have no limit. L leadership has no limit. Um, and then there's always, like, exceptions to every rule. So, uh, And anyway. also the fact that, like, no one follows that rule anyway. Right. There's house members all over the place that filed 25 friggin' bills. Well, yeah, they, they file them. And then some also like get uh, roped in, like a leadership files one and then makes them the author. And so it would be nice to like have firm rules that people follow. Otherwise, what's the point in having rules, right? Like if you only it, enforce them when you want to, I guess that's why. It that's is also, um, it's an important time to remember too, as we start seeing, <clears throat> some of the bills that are filed. Uh, uh, former former representative and minority leader Scott Inman told me once that uh, this was, I can't remember if he told me this was his saying or if he told me he heard it from somebody, but it's, I've, I've, I've heard at least a half a dozen people tell me this and they've all said it comes from somebody different. Uh, the idea being that the more media attention a bill gets, the less likely it is to actually become law or even sometimes get a hearing. Yeah. So just remember, as we start seeing the inevitable you know, the inevitable uh, garden hose of absurd bills. Yeah. Remember that that most of those, 
most most but most of those will not become law because most bills don't become law. I mean, we had what? How many thousands of bills that we have filed? I mean, so, last year is not a good example. No, but typically but like, between 2,000 and 2,500 bills that are filed and maybe 10% of those, maybe 200 four, to 250, yeah. actually get signed into law. However, I, so this week was also the state chamber's legislative forum. Usually it's a luncheon, but obviously they didn't uh, get together this year, so they did it virtually, where they have the leadership um, majority and minority leaders from both chambers. So it was Speaker McCall and Leader Emily Virgin in the House, and then pro tem Greg Treat and Minority Leader Kay Floyd in the Senate on a Zoom call. It was moderated by um, Chad Warmington, who's the head of the state chamber now, used to be oil and gas guy. And during that forum, um, Senator Treat said he feels like there are too many bills get signed every year and that his his question or his um, phrase he's going to ask uh, everyone, every senator this year is why does this bill have to pass this year? Um, and that they, he really wants to like focus on a, a smaller number of what he believes to be higher quality bills and not push through or allow as many superfluous ones. Um, so we'll see. Does that, do you think that although, do you think that includes all the bills he routinely sponsors and supports having to do with guns and religious liberty and abortion? Like, does he I, count those or will those be on the subset that he feels like they need to focus on? I, I'm confident that if his name is on the bill, it will be heard and very likely. Yeah, signed yeah, into law. Okay. Now I, a couple yeah. of things. Um, one bill that has, has received some media attention um, and I fear may actually progress um, is about uh, it's a Senate joint resolution, um, which is a special kind of bill. And we'll talk about why, but it is um, designed. I think it's SJR four. If I need to go look it up, but um, it is, um, it would change the thres threshold for passage of a ballot initiative from, you know, 51% to 60%, meaning any initiative petition that goes on the ballot, uh, a simple majority couldn't approve it. It would be required to pass with a 60% majority. Now, uh, listeners, if you follow me or uh, let's fix this on Twitter, you've probably seen some tweets about this earlier this week. In fact, I was tweeting about this at the same time as the state chamber forum. I didn't know that was happening. Um, right then. And so it just happened to coincide with Greg Tree talking about this, but I, I pulled the data from the, the secretary of state's website and looked at all of the ballot initiatives since statehood, right? There's been 815 of them that have ever been out there. And they, most of them obviously didn't even make it to the ballot. Um, I take that back just over half made it to the ballot. Most of them are legislatively referred ones like this one. So a joint resolution is different than a, it's still a bill, but it doesn't go to the governor's desk. It goes to the ballot for people to vote on it. And so the reason they do that is when they have to amend the constitution, which is also interesting because another thing that Senator Treat said at the state chamber forum is that he believes our uh, state constitution is I, he used the word laughable um, and not in, in its 
purpose or content, but I think in its length, which most of us would agree, it's, you know, the third longest state constitution in the country. And it's at the time of its adoption, it was the longest governing document in the world. That's what I understand. Yeah. And I think Texas has one of the other longest ones and maybe that's due to amendments. I don't know, but it, um, yeah. So he, he said like, you know, basically kind of endorsed the idea of a constitutional convention to redo the state constitution. Now, any of these things have to be approved by the vote of the people. And so the irony of this particular one uh, that I mentioned is that the legislature would have to pass this with a simple majority to send it to the ballot. And then the people would have to pass it with a simple majority in order to set into place a higher threshold for passage of future measures, right? Like, so you would need 51% to pass a measure that would thus require 60%. Does that make sense? I mean, it just sounds like we have just we just have too much democracy going on, Andy. He too also, much, oh, that's too, thing. too too much voting is not good for democracy. But well, you're full of shit. But that's another thing that Senator Treat said. That <laughs> he supports democracy, but not direct democracy. And I was like, the, it just strikes me as odd. I don't think this is going to go well for the legislature on this measure. Um, because immediately, I mean, my phone started blowing up with people that were like, this bill is bananas. And it's <laughs> to have elected representatives who say, I want you to elect me, but I don't want you to pass your own laws. Right. And and I think that's how this is. I think that's where this is, where this is well, coming from. I mean, let's how it's. I mean, you think you, you put a truth serum in some of these guys, and I think, uh, and women, not just men. I, and I think some of them will think this is a terrible idea. I mean, look back at like, do we need to have the state for the state question 640 discussion again? Right? Yeah, like, this should. is not we as extreme as that, but it's this, but this, but this is so it, it, this was in, in 1992, Oklahoma voters approved state question 640, which said that what has to happen, that, that the legislature cannot pass a tax increase of any kind unless they get 75% or more. So not just a supermajority, not just a veto proof supermajority. You have to have a, you have to have more uh, legislators uh, sign on for a tax increase than you do to override a gubernatorial veto. Right. And this right. was legislation that um, also uh, sidebar Senator treat feels like um uh, that a lot of these state questions are being pushed by outside interests, like people from non Oklahoma. Um, mm -hmm. Let's say how much of the spending in the congressional, how much, how much of the spending in the CD five race came from outside Oklahoma, um, particularly on the Republican side, uh, a lot. So, yeah, fund uh, lobbyists for regular everyday laws, right? Like, right. And and also, as I recall, State Question 640 was, in 1992, supported in large measure by Grover Norquist's group that went around the country uh, trying to get people to sign that they would never, ever, ever raise taxes. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that's kind of a sidebar. State Question 640, I mean, there's it's, it's one of the main things that has contributed to the difficulty governing Oklahoma for the last 30 years, because even when there are even when there's a bipartisan majority of people who agree that taxes need to go up, whether it's on an income class or an industry or cigarettes, like you can't do it if even 25 of the, or 26 of the 101 members won't agree. And, right. and so it's, it's, it's created a lot of the gridlock that we see, or not even something, not even gridlock, but the difficulty we have funding programs, the difficulty that we have, you know, paying our teachers, the difficulty that we have, 
um, with Medicaid expansion, state question 640 is at the root of all of those, right? So now we want to say, okay, <laughs> what we did with state question 640, we're going to do that, although not as extreme, but for any measure that has to be passed by the people, right? right. Like, so we're going to make it even more difficult. And, and and furthermore, when you look at most most of these things that have passed in recently by state questions, right? Marijuana, uh, medical marijuana legalization, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, healthcare uh, expansion, exp uh, Medicaid expansion. These are all things that were popular with the majority of Oklahomans, but the legislature wouldn't do it because they either didn't want to spend the money, they couldn't spend the money, or it would be politically toxic to some of the members in their home districts. They thought, right? And so the voters took it upon themselves. And now the legislature wants to take that power, not away, but make it more difficult. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and then lastly, <laughs> sorry, and then I'll share another up. thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, it, but it is true. Senator treat said that he supports reforming the initiative petition process by making it more geographically uniform. So it's not enough to have a majority of voters because particularly if this majority comes from Oklahoma City or Tulsa, right? Now you have to have a majority and you have to, that majority has to include um, people from every congressional district or from certain regions of the state. What they are trying to do in some form or fashion is give a minority of people veto power over what a majority of Oklahomans want, right? right? They want to say that if you live in one of the metropolitan areas, you count less, Right. You're not as important. Like your votes don't count as much if you live in a metro because you have because they don't. <laughs> right. Like, there's not a reason. Right. Your votes don't count as much. So you have to go convince people who maybe live in another part of the state to support you because you have to have their support, too. It's not enough just to have a majority. Well, yeah. And so I, you know, we talked about this last year um, because the state chamber put these changes to the initiative petition process in their Oklahoma 2030 vision plan or whatever. These were their policy goals. Of course, this last session, um, you know, went into the trash can once COVID hit. And so a lot of things got sidebarred, except not everything, right? Like they did pass changes to uh, financial disclosures, which is probably a good thing um, for, for ballot question campaigns. And they changed something else, um, some other timeline thing. And it's just kind of a big hassle. So so there's that. Oh, they changed the signature form. So we haven't seen any state questions yet that will have that new um, uh, that new form. So that'll be interesting. I think if it plays out the way I hope it does, it may actually be a good change as well. Um, but they, you know, they've kind of announced they want to make it, they want to have a higher threshold. They want to force um, signature collectors to like travel the state, either to every congressional district or every county. Um, and the example that they gave uh, um, that I think Chad Warmington gave was about, you know, well, you can't just go to the state fair and collect signatures from people in Oklahoma County. And it's like, okay, first of all, anyone who's been to the state fair knows that there are people from every nook and cranny of Oklahoma that show up and it is arguably the best place to go to get a representative sample of our state. Um, it yes, is convenient. And okay, I mean, the other big strategy is to go to county fairs and collect signatures too, right? Like, so the important thing I think it is for listeners to know is that 
it says politicians trying to limit your access to democracy, right? They want all the laws to go through them, not for the people to have the unfettered access that is afforded to us by our state constitution. The right of the petition, the people to petition their government is like the top of the list in our state constitution when our framers wrote the constitution for this very reason, because they understood that government, while it can be a force for good and we all want it to be a lot of the time, sometimes it is too sluggish or resistant to moving and doing the things that people want and we need a way to do it ourselves, the bar is already really high. Like it is not easy, right? It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars to, to run a statewide ballot campaign. It's like running for governor or any other statewide office, except you also, not just the campaign, but you also have to get, um, you know, several hundred thousand people to sign a piece of paper to even allow the issue to go on the ballot. And regardless of where the signatures come from, once that measure is on the ballot, it is up for a vote of all Oklahoma voters, regardless of where they live, right? And this is this is not an urban versus rural thing. In fact, I mean, there are state question 777, right? Was a, about um, the right to farm bill. Uh, you know, going back a few decades, like, the the state question that had to do with cockfighting was <laughs> a whole other issue. These this is not an urban versus rural thing. This is a power thing. This is a democracy thing, and it's super important. And uh, in the past, when these kinds of measures, where the legislature has sought to increase their power in some way or decrease the power of the people, it the people have seen right through it. it has not gone well. And and I mean, one thing to look at is. This most recent election, the failure of state question 814, which would have changed the way TSED is money is used, right? So the money going in, some of it, more of it would go to the legislature. And you heard a lot of people being saying, well, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily agree with how TSED spends their money, but I have zero faith that the legislature is going to do the right thing with it. Um, even though they tried to say, oh, this is for Medicaid. And I, people I know who are, you know, politically curious or just kind of ancillarily pull up, pay attention, not, not listeners, not you, other people, um, you know, friend, like my grandma, right. And people like that, that are kind of aware of stuff and vote religiously. They were like, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, and so I think, I think that's encouraging to me that I think people will see, see through this. Should it make it to the ballot? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, 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 I think that this might, might be a pretty, um, this might be a pretty heavy lift, um, if it does get through the legislature and get referred, uh, to the ballot. And I think you would see, uh, I think you would see a lot, a lot of pushback, but even from places you might not expect. I think that like, there would be a, this, this, this would be a state question campaign that I think we need a lot of airtime, um, a lot of money behind it on both sides. Um, yeah, I think there'll I, be a no campaign. I can't imagine. And this is often the case. The legislature refers stuff to the ballot and unless the state chamber is going to fund it. But um, I think once we get into it, I don't think it's going to go well for them. Also, if they put this I, in, in other like restrictions on the initiative petition process on the ballot, you know, there's going to be folks that are trying to run a bunch of other reforms on the same ballot to capitalize yeah. on that energy, right? Like, 
if you're going to make this sure, a populist sure. election, that's going to be a referendum uh, against political infrastructure, then let's go whole hog and make this happen. <sighs> All right. What else All is right. going on? Oh, other news. We uh, we talked last week about uh, the governor made a surprise appointment to uh, the state board of education. Oh, yeah. um, he had a, a appointed a woman from Enid. Um, who uh, felt like uh, vaccines and masks are a bunch of hogwash um, after uh, after rescinding his appointment of uh, uh, Mr. Ballenbach without explanation. Um, however, uh, over the course of the week, Miss um, Crabtree has asked that she not be appointed to the state school board, and the governor has rescinded her nomination, um, blaming Democrats and unions. Uh, uh, for for opposing uh, what was otherwise a uh, a, uh, a a great nomination, um, I don't. I mean, yes, Democrats and Democrats opposed it, but so did like a lot of Republicans too. <laughs> like this was, I don't. It's very. I was very curious, kind of what the thought process here was with this uh, appointment, and it's interesting. You know, you and I were were texting about why why do this, um, and then the governor came out and told us. He said, uh, "I feel like uh, my appointments should represent, uh, kind of, be in line with my views and policy goals and where I'm at." Um, Mr. Ballenbach had been um, in favor of uh, mask mandates in schools and COVID vaccination, so I don't I don't know if that's why the governor took him off the board, but it it seems like maybe it could be. Yeah, I mean, it did it, it didn't his statement he said that and then I feel like the next day it was like he, when he or maybe it's the same statement but he basically said like well the the democrats and the teachers unions are the ones that are just trying to get their policies pushed through or whatever and I was like didn't you just say that you appointed the person to get your policies pushed like it just seemed like we all, this is a political appointment we all know that and it, and if you're not okay with them exercising their own judgment, why do you think someone else should be okay with them exercising, you know, their own judgment? It just, it seemed like a double standard. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying. It is, it is interesting. And I mean, I've, I've never been governor and don't expect I will be, but, um, <laughs> not after you know, part. yeah, right. Um, or, or any of the other 145 episodes we've done, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what tack I would take if I had all these appointments and jobs to fill, but it seems like there's kind of, there's, there's a couple different philosophies. There's the appoint qualified people to do the job, assuming that there are people that, you know, generally speaking, you kind of align with ideologically and mm -hmm. then allow them to do the job or appoint people that you expect are going to do the things you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the governor is in favor of the latter. He doesn't just want someone with whom he has ideological, ideological or general ideological or philosophical agreement. He wants someone who is going to, I mean, I don't know if the governor communicates with his board appointees or not, but he wants people who are going to do what he wants them to do, not exercise their own, their own judgment based on their experience and expertise and, and qualifications, etc. So I, you know, we've talked about this um, offline, but it's a, probably a good conversation here. When, because this this discussion is coming up related to the Biden administration and who he appoints, right? And everyone's like, 
oh, these people are so qualified and, you know, the folks that President Trump appointed are not. Well, that's not boring, and, boring technocrats is what they've been <laughs> described yeah, as. And, but like, is, you know, the old, it, I guess the question is, is qualified in the eyes of the beholder? Like, you know, someone that you and I might say is qualified. It doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that someone who is unqualified in, in my opinion, would do a, a bad job. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, I think, you know, at the at national level, right? Like Jared Kushner, I don't know his whole like career history, but it seems like he's had um, some positions that you might not expect the president's son-in-law to have if he didn't have appropriate qualifications and that it was a familial um, appointment and other cronies and friends. But I, do you think like, I mean, there's everything is so politicized that even someone who is qualified gets hit with accusations of being a political hack for some reason. Right. So like, is there, I guess I mean, I'm rambling, but like, is there an, how do we empirically measure someone's qualifications for a political? Well, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know that you can empirically measure it, but I mean, I think good. Um, I mean, maybe maybe one example. Um, let's consider <clears throat> let's consider two. Um, let's consider two um, of President Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court. Right. So first, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Right. Um, circuit Court Judge. I think for quite a few years, he's written a lot of opinions. He's heard many cases. Um, widely regarded as a like brilliant jurist, has a clear, I think, uh, textualist uh, philosophy in terms of how he mm-hmm. approaches the law. Right? right. I don't think and, anybody. And you might not agree. Has, has enough history that people can know. Like this is how he. This is how he grew up in the law and his jobs and how he thinks about things and maybe where he's at today. Yeah. And then, then I think you could think of um, the, his most recent appointment, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And I will say at the outset, like from everything I've obviously never met Justice Barrett, everything I have read about her um, from from people on both sides of the aisle is that she was a brilliant law student, a fantastic law professor, um, and absolutely just a, a brilliant attorney who very likely would be, you know, should an appointment or a position arise would very likely one day be a front runner for a Supreme court seat, depending on, you know, who was in the white house and when the vacancy arose. But there were some questions about, you know, she's only been a judge, I think for three years. And, you know, is someone who has only been serving as a judge for three years, is that an appropriate level of experience to put on the U.S. Supreme Court? So on the one hand, you could say that she's qualified based on her academic credentials. You could say that clearly she's qualified based on her clerkships after she finished law school and then her reputation as, as an absolute star in terms of her legal mind. But is there or should there be more experience as a judge before one is appointed to the high court? I don't know that that's a right answer or, or that there is a right answer. But so I think think that they are, but I'm saying that the difference in those two resumes, I would think that that might that might open up Justice Barrett to be more 
more susceptible to uh, more susceptible to um, accusations of political bias than someone like Gorsuch. Right. I, th- I think maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know. That's, 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 I mean, that's just an example. I mean, obviously it's totally different than like, you know, a state board of, of education. Um, you know, does someone need to have been a teacher or a school administrator to be an effective member of the school board? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think certainly that it, it might help. It might help to have other experience too. Right. Um, you know, I know there are certainly people on the Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City Public uh, School Board who have never been educators and do a good job. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just rambling now. But yeah, qualified is yes in in the eye of the, is, is I think probably to some degree in in certain professions at least qualifies in the eye of the, uh, in the eye of the beholder. Right. And I think it's it is probably politically frustrating, right? When when someone of one party appoints people who don't have a long history of activity with which they can be measured, right? So you can you, everyone kind of knew where Gorsuch sits on these things. Justice Barrett, like we have a inkling, but it's not the same. It's not you don't have as much text behind it, um, and so if you are the opposition to either, you know, regardless of party, if you're the other side and you're trying to attack or discredit someone, well, maybe it's, you have less to work with, right? I was gonna say, maybe it's easier, but not necessarily. You just have less to work with. And I think it makes it tough for the public. So let's bring this back to the voters, right? Like if we, the voters are trying to figure out how we feel about something, right? So the, so the governor appoints someone to the state board of education and Immediately, there are, you know, outcries from one side, presumably the other party from the governor, right? And then there are cries of support from the same party. I I often feel for the appointee. And in this case, this is what happened with the, the woman from Enid, right? Like, immediately, there was an enormous amount of blowback. Well, not immediately. Once people shared photos of her Facebook posts, then there was enormous amounts of blowback. And I think she was like, you know what? I don't, I didn't sign up for this. And so she's like, you know, just, uh, just go ahead and resend your appointment. I don't want to deal with this. Um, and so presumably whoever he appoints next will have uh, advanced warning to scrub their social media of any <laughs> potentially offensive posts that oh, may be right. uh, used against them. All right. What, what else is going on? Uh, we have uh, 19 candidates filed for four yeah. uh, uh, seats of the Oklahoma City Council for the 2021 election. That's exciting. So I thought we might end with that because uh, we mentioned this last week as well, that it was it was uh, candidate filing for city council, I think for school board as well, right? I believe, yes. yes. And not just, I mean, this has going, been going on across the state. War Acres, city of War Acres had filing for their city council races. And there was very almost no opposition. Like every seat just had one person that filed, uh, except for I think there were one or two seats that had two people that filed. So they'll actually have an election. But yeah, but it is, uh, and that was the trend across the state. Like a lot of you know municipal races and school board, you only have a couple of candidates that file. But here in Oklahoma City, yeah, nineteen for so four seats up, four council positions. Yes. That is correct. So um, I love it, man. The love fewest, it. the fewest was three for one one seat um, for Councilman Stone's seat, I think. Uh, but yeah, 
it'll be interesting. And you know, I, I tweeted this from my personal account that if this isn't a good argument for ranked choice voting, I don't know what is because the whole system is like, there will be an election. And then if there's, if, you know, someone from each seat gets more than 50%, then they win. But if, if they don't, and it would be almost impossible for someone to get more than 50% when you've got seven candidates running, right? Like, um, and so if, if someone doesn't get 50%, then it'll go to a runoff in a couple of months later. But if it, it was like a, a bunch of if then statements and I just thought it was a really confusing process. Like for the general public trying to figure out when they have an election, knowing that they may or may not, then it's, it's a tough, tough deal to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here it is. I found it All right, right. So it says, if only one qualified candidate files, then they're automatically elected. That's not the case with Oklahoma City. If two or more candidates file, then the winner of the February 9th primary is, oh, if only two file, then the winner wins. But if three or more file, then February's election will determine whether or not a runoff is necessary, and that'll be in April. So it's like, if someone gets more than 50%, then, they're, then they win. If no one gets more than 50%, then the top two go on to a runoff in April, and the winner of that wins and would take office on April 13th. So we have the potential for two elections, but up front, you don't know how it's going to be. It's a really meandering process. Is that right? I love government, don't you? But, uh, it's uh, <laughs> most of the time. In my head, I do. I do this, this All right. All right, man. Well, it's been a long is week. Is there anything else? Or is that, I was going to say, is that going to wrap us up for this week? I think that's probably about well, all we got. Let's wrap right? it up for this week. Uh, again, listeners, thanks for being here. A shout out to our host in absentia, Bailey Perkins. Hope that you are healing up well. And uh, listeners, stay safe. Uh, be kind to yourself and to others. Don't forget. I don't. Don't forget to finish your Christmas shopping or whatever holiday you celebrate. I don't know how to buy stocking stuffers. This is my dilemma this year. Presents, I'm fine, but like stocking stuffers are like impulse buys you get at the register, and I'm not going in anywhere. Uh, so I don't know what I'm gonna do. Just stuff it full of candy, oranges, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> that works. <laughs> All right, listeners, have a good week, and we'll see you next time.